Welcome, and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Women at Ropes Talk, a podcast series brought to you by the Women's Forum at Ropes and Gray. In this podcast, we spotlight extraordinary women who have had successful careers and interesting lives and are making a positive impact in their workplaces and their communities. We feature women attorneys at Ropes and Gray in conversation with prominent women clients, industry leaders, and entrepreneurs. We talk about their careers and what's led to their successes, the challenges they faced, and the hard-earned wisdom that they've acquired. I'm Christine Moundis, a healthcare partner at Ropes and Gray based in New York and co-head of the firm's Digital Health Initiative. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Beth Weinman, who's based in Washington, D.C. Beth, to get things started, could you please introduce yourself and provide a brief overview of your practice? Sure. Hi, Christine. I'm Beth Weinman. I am counsel in Ropes and Gray's Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Group out of Washington, D.C. And my practice is focused on compliance with and investigations and enforcement related to FDA regulatory obligations, mostly but not exclusively in the drug and medical device arenas. And who's the special guest that you'll be interviewing on this episode? I will be interviewing Jennifer Zachary, a.k.a. Jay-Z, who is Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Merck. Excellent. And how did you meet and start working together? We are both alumni of FDA's Office of Chief Counsel, but we didn't actually work together because she left the office the month I arrived. She must have heard I was coming. But Jay-Z is a legend, and I got to know her through friends, OCC alumni events, and industry-focused conferences. And what do you say is the most notable thing about Jennifer's career? That's easy. The fact that five years ago, she became general counsel of one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies at such a phenomenally young age and without working in-house before getting the job. That's pretty remarkable and a true testament to her talent. That is amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. And with that, I'll turn it over to you and Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer, or Jay-Z, as you're known in FDA circles. Thank you so much for joining us to chat today. You have had such an amazing career, and I'm really just thrilled um, for our listeners to be able to hear all about it. So why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? So Beth, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I am currently the general counsel of Merck and executive vice president. So in addition to supervising the legal department, I also oversee the environmental health and safety function for our company, um, global security and aviation as well. Um, before that, I was a partner at a large law firm in the food and drug practice. And before that, I was an attorney in the FDA um, on the civil civil enforcement side. And I also did a little bit of a time at the DOJ on the civil side. Great. Wow. So when I think about the fact that you're like covering aviation and I know you as an <laughs> FDA lawyer, I'm just like, wow, how crazy. But we'll, we'll talk about all of that, you know, the trajectory of your career and how you learn to deal with the sort of very broad scope um, that you deal with now. Sounds good. So, but first, first things first, how, how did you come to law? Did you always know you'd be a lawyer? You know, I did not. I would say I was a bit of a late bloomer um, with respect to the law. So I was in college and I was a science major studying chemistry and biology and doing research in biogeochemistry. And that had me spending a lot of time in the lab, which was two floors underground, um, sifting through soil and taking measurements um, and then going out in the field with my backpack. But I was doing all of that sort of by myself or maybe with a handful of other people. And I realized that even though I love science, it was a 
pretty isolating experience, the sort of the, the research path that I was on. Um, and so in my fifth year of college, yes, it was my fifth year, um, I audibled and decided that I would go to law school. Part of, I think, why I was excited about law school was my sister was in law school at the time at Yale, and I'd gone out to see her do moot court, and I thought it was amazing. And then I learned that there were all these ways you could use science in the law. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I could make those two match up and have a career where you could sort of do science, but also spend a lot of time with people and out in the world. I was going to ask you how, how you got to your first job post-clerkship at FDA, but your science background must have been a part of that. It was definitely a part of it. You know, I thought in law school that I would be an environmental lawyer because I'd studied ecology. It sort of made sense. Um, and then when I was allowed to take my very first elective, which I think was over the winter of our first year, I took uh, environmental law and kind of realized that it was mostly, at least what I was studying, about apportioning blame for pollution or other horrific things that had already happened. You know, like the whatever animal is extinct, whose fault is it? Um, and that really did not speak to me. Um, but then in my second year, I took a food and drug law course from Peter Hutt, a sort of luminary of our field. He was the former chief counsel of FDA in the late 70s. But he wrote I took the his, textbook. He wrote the textbook, <laughs> literally wrote right. the textbook. Yeah. And so took his course, loved it, and then decided from there that I desperately wanted to be an FDA lawyer, although the path to get there was not so clear. Um, straight out of clerkships, FDA used to not hire people. Oh, I didn't realize that. So how did yeah. you get there? Yeah, so I so I, I had Peter Hart as a mentor, um, and then actually I was dating a guy my third year of law school who was already working in a law firm in Boston, and he, the partner he worked for was related to someone in counsel's office at FDA, and so I sort of made that connection and sort of cultivated that relationship. Um, and then I got really lucky because there was a huge budget crunch and FDA couldn't afford to hire what the what one of my colleagues referred to as real lawyers. Um, <laughs> so I and, and two other folks were hired in um, straight out of law school or clerkships. And so I got extremely fortunate, I think. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So let's talk about your time at FDA. You were in the chief mm -hmm. counsel's office. Correct. The entire time you were there. The entire time. Okay. which was five and a half years, I think. Okay. Ish. And what, what's the nature of what you did there? What, yeah. what kind of work? Yeah. So when you first come in, um, they wanted you to cut your teeth with sort of a broad range of the simplest cases. So that was often foods cases and enforcement. One of my very first cases I remember was a whole shipment of canned crab meat that had been in <laughs> the trailer of a semi-truck when the refrigerator part had gone out. Um, and they were still trying to sell it. And uh, somehow FDA got wind of this fact. And so we needed to seize the truck container with all the spoiled crab meat. Um, that's a tough case to lose because those usually proceed uh, without any party on the other side. You're literally <laughs> litigating against the, the truck containers. I, I managed to win a few of those, but that's sort of where you start your career at FDA. Fantastic. And yeah. then you moved on to doing stuff besides in rem seizures of crab meat. Exactly. Yes, I moved. I moved along. Um, started doing more in the medical device and the drug space, both offensive cases. You know where we were suing to stop people who were violating the law. You know, producing products that were unsafe, but then also defending the agency when their approval determinations and and other regulatory decisions were challenged. So I got a nice range of of both enforcement and defensive matters. 
And what was the best moment, if you can think about it, of your tenure? My best moment at FDA, it's hard to say. There were so many great moments. I think one of the highlights for sure was I had a big case um, that was a TRO, temporary restraining order case, um, out in Wyoming. And the the company was producing unapproved new drugs that were actually opioids. Um, So pretty significant uh, public health risk posed by that. Um, And so FDA had gone to shut them down and they didn't want to be shut down. So Mm. it was a TRO hearing in a pretty unfriendly jurisdiction Cody, Wyoming. Uh, Yeah, the Department (laughs) of Justice and I flew out for in very short order. Um, But it was uh, was a great hearing. Um, We ended up prevailing, which was really satisfying. It was high stakes. It was a big FDA initiative. It had a lot of attention from the commissioner and the center director at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research within FDA. And so there was a lot of eyes on it. And I was nervous. And I remember my boss, Rick Blumberg, who's kind of this luminary um, Mm -hmm. at FDA who ran enforcement for many, many years. He said to me, hey, have fun. You know, and win. If you don't win, don't come home. And he kind of laughed, and <laughs> and you knew he was mostly kidding. Um, but it, I think that that advice, like a lot of the advice that he had, was good. Like if you're not having fun with whatever you're doing, whether it's you know the law or something else, you're not going to do it very well. And so, sort of focusing on making sure you're having fun, knowing that the cause that you're pursuing is just, and then you know fighting really hard to try to win. I thought you know that's a that's a great encapsulation of what I think is the best of being a lawyer. That's great. That's great. And clearly Rick felt that way because he spent 40 years doing just that. that. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what the most important lesson you learned at FDA was, but maybe it was learning how to have fun as a lawyer. I think that's right. I think other important lessons I learned there were definitely you have to work hard. Um, You have very limited resources when you're a government attorney. You're fighting against usually people who are much bigger with many more lawyers and many more dollars behind them. Um, And so you have to work incredibly hard and you have to have grit and determination and know that not everything is going to break your way, um, but that you have to just keep fighting and, and believe in the cause. And so I think that was also really good training to be a lawyer. That's great. And so you had this amazing job and you had fun and you did this important work and then Mm -hmm. you left and you went to a law firm. Mm -hmm. So tell us why, what that was like, the transition. Yeah. So the transition was both difficult and surprisingly easy. I left FDA, if I'm completely honest, um, because my law school loans were not going to pay themselves. Um, I had been in the government, you know, basically between my clerkship and FDA for almost seven years, um, and I needed to pay back those law school loans. I had litigated a number of cases um, against a number of law firms that were prominent in the space, um, and I, you know, I could see myself to some extent on the other side, but I thought it would be very temporary. I thought it would be two years. I had this whole two-year plan, um, and then I would come right back to FDA with sort of the experience that I had gained in private practice. Um, I was so certain it would be two years that I literally made a paper chain that had 24 links in it, um, and I would cut off a, a link each month and staple it to a piece of paper and write a little note to my boss, Rick, um, and, and his deputy, Anna Murray, and just tell them in non-privileged terms like what I was up to and what I was learning and, you know, just kind of checking in. And then I, I quit sending those notes about a year in. And he said, we knew we knew then that we had lost you. 
turns out I loved private practice. Um, I think that the desire to protect the public health is just as strong in private practice attorneys as it is in those in the agency. It's just as a private practice attorney, you are the front lines. You are the people in the room with the company when they're making really important decisions. And you can help to ensure that the decision they make is the right decision and keeps people safe. And so once I sort of understood my role and the really big impact that you could make in private practice, then I was completely content and felt like it aligned with my values. Um, also, being a private practice attorney is so great because everyone brings you their hardest, most interesting problems. I'm To this day, I'm still super jealous of some of the projects that we send out. And of course, I get the report, but it's not the same as being the person who does the deep thinking and the writing and the research. So it's uh, it was definitely a transition that was uh, challenging, but ultimately very rewarding. Yeah, you know, the thing I loved hearing when I was at OCC also was how important it is to have well-trained um, FDA lawyers in the bar on the outside. Um, and so I definitely feel like people were understanding because in order to to move the mission forward, you need to have people who know what they're doing on both sides of the, yes. of the aisle. But so you found the joy in private practice, but you also came in, I mean, pretty senior, experienced, right? True. Yeah. What advice would you give to a young lawyer in private practice about trying to find the joy? Yeah, I think that I would give similar advice to what I enjoyed as a young lawyer at the FDA, which is know you're going to work really hard. Make sure that you're taking on projects that are interesting. Now, not every project will be interesting, but do your best to try to find the ones that are interesting and really pour yourself into those. Um, focus on working on things where you know you're going to learn something, um, where you think you can actually contribute, like be someone who other people within the firm are going to look to to know something about X. Um, and then I think maybe the most important thing, at least for me in private practice, was making sure that I surrounded myself with attorneys who I admired, people who I really respected, thought had done interesting things with their career, took the time to mentor and teach me and care about the people around them, um, focused on you know having good clients, clients who wanted to do the right thing. Um, all of that, I think, is you find that in the government, but you can just as easily as a younger lawyer find that within a law firm. But it takes being pretty thoughtful. And how did you deal with the situation if it arose ever, yes, where your client didn't want to do the right thing when you knew what the right thing was. Yeah, it's really challenging. I think at the end of the day, everyone wants to do the right thing, but there are impediments. And so trying to help them to understand that the impediments that were presented by not doing the right thing were so much worse. Um, and usually that really required helping that internal person to educate their colleagues, you know, the business who probably doesn't have the same understanding of the consequences. In uh, food and drug law, we have something called the Park Doctrine, which is strict liability um, for, you know, even um, misdemeanors where people had no intent and maybe not even knowledge. And so making sure that people understand the really serious consequences of making a choice uh, in the space that isn't the right one, I think was the biggest thing. I never did have to resign from a client, but I will say there were definitely companies that I preferred working for and who I would put more of my efforts into cultivating relationships and, and working for versus companies where I felt like they the lawyers had a little less say-so over their clients or a little less direct control because I just, I didn't enjoy that as much. It didn't align as much with my values. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it's for sure hard to find the joy when you feel like your own values are being challenged. Yes. Yes, for sure. 
So you did enjoy your work um, in private practice, but you're not there anymore because you had this amazing opportunity arise. So tell us, how did the opportunity at Merck arise for you? Yeah. So I, you know, I did leave. I was not looking to leave. I was surprised when the when the opportunity came along. Um, Merck was certainly on a very short list of companies that I would have had an interest in going in-house to work for. About a year and a half before the opening at Merck came about, I had done a big project for them in the pharmaceutical regulatory space, and it was one that had a lot of attention from their executive team, so the CEO and the CFO and the head of research, um, but as well as a fair amount of time with the board, head of the audit committee and lead director. And so I got to spend some time with those folks. And, you know, hearkening back to what we talked about earlier around the idea of, you know, surrounding yourself with lawyers who are really strong, you know, Merck hadn't hired me. They'd hired a partner at my firm who is an incredible lawyer. Richard Kingham at Covington. Um, And he insisted that they sort of take me as part of the package. Like he really believed in mentoring. And so on a very big project, he put me out front and center. That's how I ended up with all of this exposure. Um, So that when Merck did end up with an opening, um, their general counsel was was leaving to take another uh, GC job sooner than they expected. Um, The then CEO, Ken Frazier, who's a huge advocate for diversity, um, he very much wanted to add some female representation to his executive team. So they were looking for a female lawyer. And, you know, he was the former, by the way, general counsel and a very well-regarded lawyer in his own right. He knew he had a couple years to kind of bring me along um, and get me ready before he was going to transition out of his role. So I think getting a job like general counsel of a Fortune 100 company about 10 different things that are highly improbable all have to align in that moment for that to happen. And I think that's exactly what happened. But uh, I was I was very fortunate and I have enjoyed it. It's now been five years, which I can't believe. It's amazing. And yeah. I remember when the trade press hit and I'm like, oh my God, she's so young. <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. And, and, you know, so many people that we know and you know, too, who are in in-house roles, I mean, they grew up in in-house roles. They, they oftentimes, they go to private practice and they hate it. They <laughs> yes. don't find the joy. Yes. And then they, they look for those in-house roles that train them from sort of one smaller to bigger to bigger. Yeah. But that's not you. No, no. Um, So I I guess my question is, you know, you're this partner in this fabulous FDA practice at a law firm, happy going about your business. And then you are presented with an opportunity at this groundbreaking, massive, global, you know, pharma company. How did you um, feel ready? I mean, and what did you do to prepare? So, yeah, I didn't feel ready at all. I will say in retrospect that I don't think law firm lawyers give themselves enough credit for the amount that they know. Even someone in a pretty specialized space like my FDA regulatory space, I worked on a lot of deals. I worked on a lot of intellectual property matters, a ton of litigation, a lot of investigations, you know, obviously regulatory and the skills in regulatory translate to a lot of different regulatory areas. So I feel like in retrospect, I had more background than I realized. That said, whew, there's a lot I didn't know. Um, and it kind of cracks me up because later my boss, Ken Frazier, said to me, you know, at the beginning, like, you were just so confident. He's like, I was a little worried. But he's like, then later you seemed to understand that there was a lot you had to learn. Um, but I, I was blessed. Uh, Merck had and has some really stellar in-house lawyers who are excellent in their space. Um, and they were they were really good at helping to educate and teach me. I think one of the most important 
important things to do when you move into a role where you know in your heart that you're not quite ready is to be humble and to admit to people that you don't know things that you're trying to, you know, you're trying to figure it out on the fly because people will help you. A great example of that is that the general counsel of Merck two before me, a lawyer named Bruce Kulik, um, who, uh, who also has a long government background. I knew him. He was a mentor. Once he knew that I was going to take the job, um, he gave me a GC boot camp. He literally sat down with me for a whole day and had an agenda and walked through sort of what I needed to know both to be a GC, but what I needed to know about Merck since he had been the GC there. And it was incredibly thoughtful and really helpful. So it's been five years. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you found your groove? <laughs> I do think I found my groove. Um, it's definitely taken a while. And one of the things I love about the job is there's always something new to learn. There's always a new matter to take on. Um, but I do feel like now I have a great team in place, people who I'm really comfortable operating with. Um, our executive team has had a lot of transition in those five years. We now have a, a new CEO, Rob Davis, and I am the second most senior member of the, our 10-person executive team. So we've had a lot of transition, but I feel like I've kind of found my space and, and found you know the, the areas where I think I contribute the most um, and the people with whom I sort of have found my kinship. So yeah, I think I have hit my group. That's great. And yeah. What types of issues today, these days, keep you up at night? What do you worry about? I have to say one of the keys of a GC job is really trying not to let things keep you up at night. I think that to have longevity in this role, you kind of have to have a certain amount of like zen, um, which requires working with a great team and, and all of those things. But in terms of kind of the issues that get my attention, it's anything that causes disruption. Uh, Merck is a 130-year-old company, and we are very good at what we do, which is finding products that save and improve lives. Um, but in order to do that, sort of be the well-oiled machine that we are, we need a certain amount of predictability. Like bumps along the way are not helpful. So the things that I worry most about are disruption that's unanticipated. We've had a lot of that in the last, what, three, four years? The yeah. most obvious example, of course, yeah. being COVID. Um, but then geopolitical unrest, um, you know, there's Russia, Ukraine, and, and a number of, of other sort of geopolitical tensions, um, transitions, political transitions in the United States that have also been challenging. Um, there's relatively new legislation, still less than a year old, the Inflation Reduction Act that has drug pricing provisions that have a significant impact on the pharmaceutical industry and are kind of changing how we think about R&D and the development of products at Merck. And so the issues that sort of have my focus and have the majority of my attention these days are the ones that, that cause the most disruption. Yeah. So I, I want to know what it's like to be two years at Merck, you know, <laughs> as a new GC and, and then a once in a century global pandemic hits. It I mean. was crazy. Um, I think it was crazy for everyone. But um, not having any kind of a playbook, not understanding what that looked like. In some ways, it was very fortunate because we have on staff some of the world's preeminent, you know, uh, physicians and researchers in the in the pandemic space. The former head of the CDC, Julie Gerberding, um, who guided us through previous small, much smaller scale pandemics, uh, was one of my colleagues on the executive team. And so we had a lot of expertise around us, but trying to figure out how to run a business in that time um, and think about how we could best contribute. So we had 
two different vaccine candidates, actually more than that, but two that we made public um, that failed pretty spectacularly, along with many of our peer companies. So we ultimately ended up agreeing to be the manufacturing muscle for J&J on their COVID vaccine, which ultimately it too proved not to be sort of the most successful of the vaccines. But, you know, trying to find a way to contribute, we came up with some therapeutics um, that have, I think, been helpful. Um, but it was a really challenging time trying to do right by our people, do right by our customers, like all of that. Um, that kept me very, very busy. I feel like I sort of had a, a, a minor, if you will, in HR in that time period as well. Fascinating. Yeah. And then there's yeah. so many issues separate and apart from the role of being a pharmaceutical company in a pandemic space, mm-hmm. all the HR and um, wow, to, to have to deal with that, it must have been intense. But I'm, I'm glad, and I'm sure you are too, to see that people are at least focusing on let's get prepared for the next time. Yes. So we're not caught flat-footed. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how I think you benefited from Merck's interest in diversity, mm-hmm. right? So are there efforts or successes besides you <laughs> <laughs> um, regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion that you are particularly proud of and, and can tell us about? Yeah, absolutely. I think as a company, we're doing a lot of great things. I think sort of a an example from my space that's near and dear to my heart is we have what we call the Merck Legal Network um, Diversity Program. And so our Merck Legal Network is um, a group of firms, it's about 10, um, who we do the bulk of our work with. The majority of our billable hours come through those firms. And you know, sort of as a result of our patronage, we ask certain additional things of those firms. Um, and one of them is some pretty robust reporting um, and engagement with us. And so we launched this program now three years ago We have a diversity committee internally um, in our legal department where we work with each firm um, in the network to establish bespoke diversity goals for that firm. Like, let's say they're doing a great job of making sure that they provide us with diverse, you know, associates, like specifically, you know, African American male associates. Then our goal might be something that's like Asian American, you know, female associates, you know, like very focused goals, um, but working with them back and forth to try to figure out what's really going to move the needle. Some of them are much more like on your comp committee, you know, what's the representation look like? What what commitment can you give us about um, transforming those institutions that have historically uh, not been diverse? So we set these goals and then the firms work towards them. And at the end of the year, we uh, apportion a million dollar pot of money that we've set aside um, and we award them based on how they do with their goals. And mm. it's it's been an amazing program because many of the firms have stepped up and, you know, with the 250000 or the 500000 that they were given for winning that particular year, they've plunged it back into their own internal diversity efforts. And it's been great. I really love how that works. I, you know, we're not the only company that does this, but I think we really concentrated on providing a carrot and a lot less of the stick. I think too much of the diversity stuff is negative. Mm. And I think that we have our own challenges internally with respect to representation. And half the time we're stealing the, the best talent right. from our firms. Um, so I think that the idea of a partnership and working with them was really, I think, uh, something that's a little bit novel to Merck. And are you seeing change? I mean, if, if your firms are meeting their goals, then are you seeing from Huge. sort of a macro? Huge. It's it's both like specific to our matters and then across the firms. And that's that's a part partly the times. But we did, last year we had... Um, a huge trial, an intellectual property trial. And one of the goals of that firm had been to actively engage diverse associates. And so we had 
a fourth year and a sixth year in a trial that was worth literally billions to our company. We had them doing directs and cross of witnesses, you know, associates getting stand-up time as third and fourth years uh, in a case that meant the world to us. And so they won that firm, you know, won that year for like their commitment. But um, but yeah, so I really think in concrete ways, both like statistically speaking, but then in in anecdotal ways that we, we are moving the needle with the program. That's terrific. Yeah. So it seems like you've really just, well, who knows what the future holds for you, but really come to, you know, the top of your game in this role and, and with what you see. Um, it's, it's always so interesting to hear about that. But tell me, if you weren't a lawyer, what, what would you be? Anything? I hope it's come through in our conversation, Beth. I love being a lawyer, um, but I do. Yeah, if, if I could do something else, maybe hearkening back to my ecology days in college, I love to be outside. When I take vacation, and I do take my vacations, and I encourage everyone to take their vacations, it's important for our mental health. When I take my vacations, they always involve significant amounts of time outside and doing athletic endeavors. So I could see myself like some sort of outdoor instructor or guide or something cool like that. Um, I always joke, uh, the Forest Service has installed cameras in most of the fire towers in the U.S., so they're no longer available to be paid to be a summer fire watcher. <laughs> but that's but, what you wanted to do? But there's a couple <laughs> There's a couple left, and in order to qualify, it's very competitive. You have to have had soil science, and I had two years of soil science. Um, but I love the idea of sitting in a fire tower with like a huge stack of books, totally out of reach except for a sat phone, like occasionally looking up and being like, hey, no fire. Um, I don't know awesome. if I could do that more than a summer. But well, I, I would love to be at the Park Service when your resume <laughs> comes in. For that I'd job. be like, this person is clearly burned out. Yeah. yeah. Well, it has been so much fun catching up with you and learning about your career, but I think our time is sadly running short. Can you leave us with something about yourself that we wouldn't learn from your LinkedIn or Merck bio, aside from your dream to to spend a summer in a fire tower? <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Um, I am from Oregon. I'm a very proud Pacific Northwesterner. Uh, my, I still have a lot of family back there. My sister and brother-in-law, my sister, a recovering lawyer, they have a farm. Um, and so I love to spend time in the Pacific Northwest, drinking the amazing microbrews and coffee and Pinot Noir and just being out in nature. And I, I suppose that probably doesn't come across in my very corporate LinkedIn. Terrific. Well, yeah. thank you so much. And um Look forward to talking to you again another time. Thank you, Beth. This has been great. Beth and Jennifer, thank you both so much for that insightful conversation. And as always, thanks to our listeners. For more information about Ropes and Gray's Women's Forum and our women attorneys, please visit www.ropesgray.com women. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.